Chapter 3, Part 2 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Operation Plan Chromite Final Conference on Inchon The questions of when and where and who had been answered to some extent. But as late as 23 August, a good many variations of opinion existed as to how the amphibious assault was to be accomplished. The natural obstacles of the Inchon Harbor were so disturbing that Doyle suggested an alternative to MacArthur and Almond. Since the purpose of the landing was to drive inland and cut the enemy's communications, urged Comfib Group 1, why not select a west coast objective with fewer hydrographic difficulties? He proposed the Posong Mayan area about 30 miles south of Inchon on the west coast, where better approach channels and beaches were believed to be available in a more lightly populated locality. A landing at this point, Doyle contended, would not be attended by the risks and restrictions of Inchon. Yet after securing a beachhead, the troops would be in position to strike inland at the enemy's main line of rail and highway communications in the vicinity of Osan. Smith was favorably impressed. He brought up the subject on 23 August when he and Barr had a meeting with Almond. The Ten Corps commander did not concur, though conceding that Posong Mayan had possibilities as an area for a subsidiary landing in connection with the Inchon assault. Nor was Doyle able to obtain MacArthur's consent to the alternative objective. It was the Marine General's third conference of the day. From the Ten Corps meeting, he had gone directly to the regular conference at GHQ and thence to the talk with Almond and Barr. He came away from all three meetings with the conviction that Sinkfee and his staff were not to be swerved by his objections. It was definitely to be Inchon on 15 September, and Smith instructed his planning group to proceed accordingly. Doyle made a last attempt at 17.30 that afternoon to present a comprehensive picture of the risks and difficulties inherent at Inchon. The final conference on the subject of a West Coast landing was attended by some of the nation's highest-ranking officers, General J. Lawton Collins, Army Chief of Staff, Admiral Forrest P. Sherman, Chief of Naval Operations, General Shepard, CGFMF PAC, Lieutenant General Edwal H. Edwards, U.S. Air Force, as well as other high-ranking staff officers who had flown out from Washington. It was no secret in Tokyo military circles that the Joint Chiefs of Staff were present for the purpose of studying General MacArthur's plans for the Inchon landing. It was also generally known that doubts and misgivings had been expressed at various times when the project was discussed at the Pentagon. General Collins stated candidly at a later date that the purpose of his Tokyo visit was to find out exactly what the plans were. Frankly, we were somewhat in the dark, and as it was a matter of great concern, we went out to discuss it with General MacArthur. We suggested certain alternate possibilities and places. Admirals Joy and Doyle also attended the meeting, and FECOM was represented by Generals Almond, Ruffner, and Wright. The conference room on the sixth floor of the Daiichi building proved too small for the audience, and members of the FIBGRU-1 team had to wait their turn in Almond's adjoining office. 
One by one, at eight-minute intervals, Doyle's officers took turns at being presented to MacArthur, who listened gravely while puffing at his pipe. The following amphibious specialists were heard. Commander Edmund S. L. Marshall, U.S. Navy, Navigation. Lieutenant Charles R. Barron, U.S. Navy, Aerology. Lieutenant Colonel William E. Benedict, United States Marine Corps, Military Aspects. Lieutenant Commander Jack L. Lowentrout, U.S. Navy, Beach Study. Lieutenant Commander M. Ted Jacobs, Jr., U.S. Navy, Seabees Pontoon Causeway Plans. Lieutenant Commander Clyde E. Allman, U.S. Navy, Ship to Shore Plans. Lieutenant Commander Arlie G. Capps, U.S. Navy, Gunfire Support. Commander Theophilus H. Moore, U.S. Navy, Air Support. The officer spoke of the natural obstacles. They asserted that it would be the peak of optimism to hope for a strategic surprise at Inchon, for the enemy also knew that only a few days each autumn month offered a tidal range sufficient to float the landing craft and supply ships over the mudflats of the harbor. They contended that even a tactical surprise was out of the question, since Walmido must be neutralized before landings could be made on the mainland. Otherwise, the vulnerable column of landing craft would be exposed to a slaughter from the flanking fire of the island's guns. The Navy group pointed out further that it must also be assumed that the enemy would not neglect a good opportunity to sow both moored and magnetic mines in the channels the shipping must take. And to cap all the other natural and man-made risks, there was danger at the height of the typhoon season that nature would intervene and scatter the amphibious armada during its approach to the objective area. The presentation lasted for nearly an hour and a half. At the conclusion, Admiral Doyle summed up by giving his opinion. The best I can say, he told the commander-in-chief, is that Inchon is not impossible. General MacArthur heard the amphibious specialist to a finish without his imperturbability being shaken. Even the onlookers who could not partake of his perfect faith were impressed. There was something magnificent about this old warrior in shirt sleeves and open collar, calmly smoking his pipe while hearing his plan dissected. Daring and optimism are supposed to be the exclusive prerogatives of youth, yet this smiling septuagenarian was not only the oldest officer at the conference, he was also the most confident and assured. After the FibGru 1 presentation ended, he took 45 minutes for his comments. Speaking with eloquence, he declared that the natural obstacles and practical difficulties of the proposed Inchon operation were more than balanced in the strategic scale by the psychological advantages of a bold stroke. About 90% of the NKPA forces were fighting in the Pusan perimeter. A combined offensive by Ten Corps and the 8th Army would have the effect of placing the enemy between the hammer and anvil. Referring to the Kunsan landing favored by General Collins and Admiral Sherman, Sinkvi asserted that this objective was too far south for a fatal blow to be dealt the invaders. He cited a historical precept in Wolfe's victory at Quebec, made possible by audacity in overcoming natural obstacles that the enemy regarded as insurmountable. He recalled the amphibious victories he himself had won in the Southwest Pacific, the Navy and sometimes the Marine Corps sharing in the glory and he ended on a dramatic note with a single, prophetic sentence spoken in tense voice. 
We shall land at Inchon, and I shall crush them. As the officers filed out into the noisy, teeming Tokyo street, most of them felt certain that the last word had been said. It was still possible, of course, for the Joint Chiefs to overrule Sink Fee, and it was not likely that all of their doubts had been laid to rest. Nevertheless, the Navy and Marine planners proceeded on the basis that a final decision had been reached that August afternoon. Brigade Victory in Korea Before his arrival at Tokyo, General Shepard had paid a flying visit to the headquarters of the brigade in Korea immediately after the Marines stormed and seized Obongni Ridge. Just as General Craig's men had taken part from 7 to 13 August in the first sustained UN counterattack, so this Army and Marine effort a week later became the first route of a major NKPA unit. After putting up a fierce struggle to hold their bridgehead on the east bank of the river Naktong, the veteran troops of the NKPA 4th Division were shattered by repeated Marine attacks. Carrier-borne Corsairs of MAG-33 had a turkey shoot at the expense of panic-stricken enemy soldiers who abandoned their arms in a wild flight. Some of the fugitives were shot down while trying to swim the river. Despite this encouraging little victory, it was still nip and tuck on the central front of the Pusan perimeter. With the U.S. 2nd Infantry Division and 5th RCT now in line, the 8th Army strategy of trading space for time had resulted in whittling down the enemy's material superiority. But the invaders still held the material advantage, and there were signs that they would soon launch an all-out effort to smash through to Pusan. The Marine Amphibious Mission General Shepard, after being informed as to the Tokyo conferences, accompanied General Smith on the morning of 24 August to a meeting with Admiral Sherman, Radford, Joy, and Doyle. It was generally agreed that not enough weight had been given to amphibious considerations in the final decision to attack at Inchon. Navy opinion held that one more attempt should be made to propose another landing point with fewer hydrographic objections. The area south of Inchon had been investigated by Navy UDT and Marine Amphibious Scouts of the Reconnaissance Company, 1st Marine Division, who had sailed to the Far East with the brigade. As a preliminary, this group had embarked on the USS Horace A. Bass, APD-124, and gone ashore undetected to stage several raids during the period 12 to 16 August on the enemy's main line of communications along the west coast. Three tunnels and two railway bridges were destroyed without the loss of a man. Next, the raiders successfully carried out a survey and reconnaissance of available landing beaches during the period 22 to 25 August in the Posong Mayan area. Their findings impressed General Shepard so much that before his departure from Tokyo, he called on Sink Fee to make a last plea for reconsideration of the landing area. General MacArthur, however, remained firm in his preference for Inchon. The meeting of the admirals and marine generals on the 24th broke up with a general agreement that the decision as to Inchon on 15 September must be accepted as the basis for final planning. That same afternoon, General Smith instructed his planning group to begin work on a scheme of maneuver. Modern amphibious tactics were in their infancy during World War I, when an appalling object lesson seemed to have been left by the Allied disaster at Gallipoli in 1915-16. Brilliant in strategic conception, this major amphibious operation might have knocked Turkey out of the war and opened the unlocked back door of Austria and Germany. 
Unfortunately, the execution fell short, and the failure was too often charged to amphibious warfare itself rather than a wholesale violation of its basic principles. In 1920, the new Marine Corps schools at Quantico became the center of marine amphibious study and research. Marine units participated in fleet problems at Panama and Calabria during the post-war years, and in 1927, the Joint Board of the Army and Navy, forerunner of JCS, stated in a directive that the Marine Corps had the mission of special preparation in the conduct of landing operations. During the early 1920s, the writings of a brilliant Marine officer, Major Earl H. Ellis, had a tremendous influence on current amphibious thought. Predicting that Japan would strike first in the Pacific and win initial successes, he drew up a strategic plan for assaults on Japanese-mandated islands, which was approved by Major General John A. Lejeune, Commandant of the Marine Corps. Later known as Operation Plan No. 712, this top-secret document helped to shape the Orange Plans adopted by the Joint Board of the Army and Navy for offensive operations against Japan if it came to war. After making good progress in the early 1920s, with landing exercises being held annually, the Marine Amphibious Program bogged down from 1927 to 1932 because of the necessity of sending expeditionary forces to China and Nicaragua. The turning point came in 1933, a memorable date in the evolution of modern amphibious warfare. It was then that Major General John H. Russell, Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, urged that a staff be set up at Quantico to plan for the organization of a mobile marine striking force. This force, under the Commandant and fully prepared for service with the fleet, was to be in readiness for tactical employment subject to the orders of the Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Navy. General Russell further proposed that the old name, Expeditionary Force, be discontinued and Fleet Marine Force adopted as a name better expressing this mission. After the acceptance of these recommendations, the Commandant ordered classes discontinued at the Marine Corps schools and a concerted effort applied to the preparation of a new amphibious manual. Both the Army and Navy had treated some of the procedures in existing manuals, but it remained for the Marine Corps in 1934 to put out the first complete work of the sort. Known as the Tentative Manual on Landing Operations, it became either directly or indirectly the guide for exercises and maneuvers of the Navy and Marine Corps down to World War II. Most of its suggested procedures were endorsed with revision in the Navy's Fleet Training Publication 167, published in 1938. This work in its turn became the model three years later for the Army's first basic field manual for landing operations. Training exercises were held every year, usually at Calabria or Vieques in the Caribbean and San Clemente Islands off San Diego. At the suggestion of the Fleet Marine Force, the Navy purchased Bloodsworth Island in Chesapeake Bay as the first amphibious gunfire range used for that purpose alone. Schools were set up to train Army and Navy as well as Marine officers as specialists in fire control parties. Air support was closely integrated with naval gunfire, shore artillery, and troop movements. Technology came to the aid of tactics when the Fleet Marine Force encouraged and supervised the designing of a strange new amphibious craft and vehicles. Concepts were actually based in several instances on landing craft not yet developed and the confidence of the Marine Corps in American inventiveness proved to be justified. 
Thus, the nation entered World War II with a system of offensive tactics which opened Europe, Africa, and the islands of the Pacific to American invasion without incurring a single major defeat. Not only was the United States ahead of the enemy in the development of amphibious operations, but the Axis powers never found the key to an adequate defense. In an often quoted summary, the British military critic and historian, Major General J.F.C. Fuller, has asserted that these techniques were, in all probability, the most far-reaching tactical innovation of the war. During the next few years, the Marine Corps was twice officially given the major responsibility for American amphibious tactics. The National Security Act of 1947 made it the function of the Corps to provide fleet marine forces of combined arms, together with supporting air components, for service with the fleet in the seizure and defense of advanced naval bases and for the conduct of such land operations as may be essential to the prosecution of a naval campaign. At the so-called Key West Conference the following spring, March 11 through 14, 1948, the Secretary of Defense and Joint Chiefs of Staff restated the Marine Corps mission to include that of developing, in coordination with the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, the tactics, technique, and equipment employed by landing forces in amphibious operations. The Marine Corps shall have primary interest in the development of those landing force tactics, techniques, and equipment which are of common interest to the Army and the Marine Corps. During these post-war years, the Marine Corps was grappling with the new amphibious problems posed by atomic weapons. It was fitting, therefore, that the three men who formed the special board for this research, General Shepard, Harris, and Smith, should have been at the forefront in 1950 when the Marine Corps faced its next amphibious test. As veterans of World War II operations, they could recall the scramble for the beaches of Bougainville, the fight for Bloody Nose on Peleliu, the off-the-cuff landing on Oroku Peninsula in Okinawa. There had been some tense moments in those battles, but never had Marine generals contemplated an objective which held more potentialities for trouble than the harbor area at Incheon. End of chapter 3, part 2, read by Aaron Bennett.